Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about a wonderful book, Dalits and Adivasis in India's Business Economy, Free Essays in an Atlas by Barbara Harris-White and a host of collaborators who Barbara will talk about in depth in the interview itself. Barbara Harris-White is Emeritus Professor of Development Studies at Oxford University, and the book is published by Free Essays Collective, who are a wonderful independent publishing house in India. The book is a really unique book, both in terms of the data gathered and the way it's presented, and... It asks a very big question. The question is, in what ways does economic liberalisation interact with caste, specifically for Dalits and Adivasis? And it answers this question through three different types of data. The first is interviews with Dalit businessmen and women. The second is a study of the role of state and non-state institutions. And the third is data from census, the economic census and the national sample survey. The diversity of the types of data is reflected in the diversity of its presentation. And it really is a wonderful book that I can't recommend enough. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me um, great pleasure to welcome Barbara Harris-White to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So, um, and thanks a lot for your really wonderful book. It's really interesting and it really is diverse in terms of the, the data it's used and the way it's presented. And this can be seen also with the different co-authors that you have and also with, yeah, as you, as you explain in the book, the actual different ways that you've gone about getting getting the data to for this book but before we talk about the book itself I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, I know you have a lot of previous research but a little bit about the previous research and how it fed into this book itself um thank you I don't really know where to start I might start with Cambridge University Mountaineering Society because it was Um, due to my membership and climbing in the Alps and winter mountaineering in Scotland that I was invited to the Himalayas. And in 1969, drove with my then new husband on a honeymoon I wouldn't advise people to have overland to India. And we hit India in year three of the Green Revolution and driving through Punjab on the way to Delhi, one couldn't help but be incredibly impressed by these enormous brickyards with um, fat merchants with diamond rings and silk kurtas sitting cross-legged in their warehouses and their showrooms and spindly little small malnourished labourers labouring under huge sacks of grain with enormous piles of grain beside the Grand Trunk Road which is now a filthy motorway um, so I came home being very interested in in markets, in the drama of markets, and I discovered that practically nothing had been written about them. And so I settled into a series of very lucky chances, which enabled me to devote the rest of my life to studying um, agricultural markets, which generally make people yawn, but fascinated me the relationship between distribution and production and in anglo-saxon scholarship distribution is always the poor relation of production it's really the french geographers and anthropologists that taught me that it was quite legitimate to study distribution and so i studied it through business histories and in the end went to four districts of india over the last 45 years um Uh, getting the story of market structure and market behavior through piecing together business histories. Um, And that has taken me in all kinds of other directions as well, because if you study agricultural markets, you might want to understand whether they're different from the marketplace as a whole, which got me interested in urbanization and urbanism. And I... I'm pleased to say that we have a book coming out um, tracing four decades of the development of a small market town in northern Tamilnadu, um, which is studying the entire town. A very foolish undertaking. Now it's the size of Oxford, but something that 
seemed possible when it was 30,000, which it was in 1973. Um, and so then from that on to other kinds of rural transformation, um, and then realizing like Monsieur Jourdain realized that he was speaking prose all his life, le bourgeois gentilhomme, I realized that I had been studying the informal economy all my life. Um, and and so put um, quite a lot of effort into trying to synthesize um, my research and other field research into um, studies of the informal economy. Having branched out and, and started to engage with the notion of the informal economy, um, I tried a work of synthesis, um, asking the question, what brings order to the informal economy? Because um, it, it, it may be called unorganized, as it is in India, but it's not disorganized, it's highly ordered. Um, and from that, uh, trying to synthesize the fieldwork of others, as well as my own, mm -hmm. I became very interested in India's informal economy as a capitalist economy, because my experience and the reading I've made of other people's work teaches me that it's not a reserve army of labor, nor is it a needs economy, as Kalyan Sanyal um, and Pata Chatterjee have it. It is a fully capitalist economy with Indian characteristics. So I wrote a book after I gave the Smuts lectures in Cambridge. Um, I wrote a book bringing all this together called India Working. And India Working is really the, f the mother of the book on Dalits, which we're talking about. In that book, I ask this question, um, what are the forms of authority which regulate the economy where the state doesn't regulate it? And remember that nine out of every 10 jobs in India are without um, a, a written contract and without rights. And something like two thirds of the economy is unregistered. So we're talking about most of the economy, which is out of the direct control of the state. So what forms of authority are mobilized to make this economy work? And it's in that sense that the title is India Working. So I looked at class, I looked at capital and labor, and I did look at the state and how it works outside its own reach. Um, but they aren't direct parents of the book on Dalits and Adivasis that we're talking about. I looked at non-class forms of authority. I looked at gender relations. I looked at religion. Um, the uh, forms of, of, um, of bonding, of social bonding that are associated with place. And I looked at caste. Um, and this book led to the conclusion that India has a set of social structures, of social institutions rather, which form a structure which stabilizes capitalist accumulation. Um, okay, so the book was published by CUP, and then two young Indian scholars came to me um, and informed me that it was fine, it was all very fine and dandy, but there were things, very important things that I'd left out. Deepak Mishra, who is a professor of regional economics in Jawaharlal Nehru University, came to me and said, um, but what about ethnicity? And I said, oh, scheduled tribes are labor, they're not capital. And he said, let's go and find out. And I hadn't realized that he had spent 13 years in Arunachal. And due to Deepak and his colleague Vandana Upadhyay, I had the most extraordinary privilege to go and do fieldwork with them on um, the rural non-farm economy, the state, and the process of accumulation and capitalist transformation in Arunachal on the border with China and Burma. Um, but this book is uh, not a book I wrote with, with Deepak. With Deepak, I worked on ethnicity, and I also worked on economic citizenship. But this book was really fired by Asim Prakash, who is now the Dean of Public Policy in the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Hyderabad campus, but who was then um, a young researcher at the Giri Institute in Lucknow. And he came to me and said, why didn't you talk about untouchability and Dalits? And I said, well, I talked about caste. And he said, yes, but being Dalit is very different from simply talking about 
caste? And then I said, well, Dalits are mainly laborers. And he said, look, well, let's find out. So Asim went out and um, interviewed 90 Dalit capitalists in North and Central India. And through the medium of business histories, um, he researched what it was like to be a Dalit entrepreneur in the business economy. Mm-hmm. And so it is from that association with Asim, who um, then moved to the Institute of Human Development in New Delhi and met up with Paniki Jodha, who supplied the data for the Atlas um, using the latest um, economic census data, that the idea of the Atlas was born. I'm sorry, that's a pretty long-winded um, introduction to the Atlas, but you asked for it. Yes, no, it's that's a wonderful introduction, and, and that's and it's it's a nice story because that's exactly how we want you know academia to be. You know, someone publishes a book, somebody says, "Oh, there's there's something missing," and you say, "Okay, let's go let's go fill in the holes." I mean, that's yes. uh, that's the that's an ideal model for how um, yeah how we learn new things. So it's no, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a, and it's and it's wonderful, and it, and you can feel this in the book. It is a, a wonderful collaboration of, of not only different people but different. Yeah, how to say different types of people or people who are thinking in different ways, and um, so this worked very well. This worked very well together. So you're, you've, you've mentioned um, Asim Prakash, but there's also um, oh, there are lots of others. Yes, <laughs> I have them here as a list. So Elizabeth um, Basile, Anita Dixit, Panaki Joda, and uh, Kashul Vidyati. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yes. So I've told it in one way, mm-hmm. um, but in fact, a number of strands of my life. Um, and of collaboration with other people are knitted together in this book. Um, Through a scene, it was possible to reinterpret what I had concluded to be a social structure of accumulation as a social structure of discrimination as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The the relationship with Elisabetta is a very long-standing one. Elisabetta Basile is a senior professor of um, economics, applied economics, at Rome's University La Sapienza. Um, and she and I have worked together on and off for, heavens above, about 20 years. Um, and what we have collaborated on is to make sense and to update and write up the um, unanalyzed surveys of an urban economy, a small town in northern Tamil Nadu called Arni. Now, if you Google Arni, you generally get Mr. Schwarzenegger in California. <laughs> but but our Arni is a very vital, um, dynamic little town, um, which which when I first stayed there in a wonderful three rupee a night DOS house called Balaji Lodge was an agricultural marketing town and is now a town with massive automatic rice mills, an enormous silk weaving sector, um, a gold quarter and a huge new education hub, a private a hub of private colleges, um, as well as being a marketplace and a wholesale centre for all the marketplaces that are springing up around it. Um, Elisabetta, who is not Italian for nothing and is a scholar of Gramsci, was hugely interested in the problem of urban economic order and corporatist order. And she did a a pioneering study of no less than 67 business associations through which this town of 100,000 people um, is managed. And what we have done together for this book is to place emphasis in the work on business associations and class um, on on the ones at the foot of the pile, the ones which are concerned with sectors of the economy which are mostly occupied by Dalits. By Well, we'll come to what a Dalit is yes. perhaps later. Okay, so um, that's the association with Elisabetta. It's one of collaboration and mutual learning. Anita Dixit came into my life um, in about 2007. She is a student of the great political economist Utsa Patnaik at JNU, and she'd come to England for personal reasons and wanted a project. 
while she was in England. And she herself had completed a pioneering doctorate with Utsapat Naik um, on Gujarat on um, agrarian poverty in the middle of the high growth rates of Gujarat under Narendra Modi. So she was studying agrarian poverty and she knew very well how uh, within Gujarat state there was an enormous amount of regional variation in prosperity and in underdevelopment. And she set out with me to use the data that we had, census data as well as economic census data and NSSO, National Sample Survey Organization data, to look at regional variations in um, agrarian relations in Gujarat. And she happily then went on to provide a lot of the um, tabulated statistical analysis of the regions that we had discovered by then with Koshal, um, the regions of incorporation of Dalits and Adivasis, that is, untouchables and tribals in the business economy. So um, this was a very fruitful and um, propitious kind of visit that she made to my office in Oxford. And that set off um, several years of working together. Um, Pinaki Jodha is a colleague of Asim's and was working at the Institute of Human Development in New Delhi, um, which is the pioneering research branch of the Indian Society of Labour Economists, Labour Economics, um, which is a real powerhouse, a very, very interesting institute where a number of highly distinguished emeritus professors are given um, uh, emeritus status there, visiting professorial fellows, and they then mentor the large number of younger um, researchers employed in the institute. It's a very exciting place. So Pinnicky was there for a while, and he processed the data from the economic census and um, transferred it in a form that we could use. Mm-hmm. Pinnicky, um, Asim. Koshal is the last of the authors. (laughs) Um, Koshal comes from uh, a very simple background, a village in Bihar without electricity. He and his brother have made their way entirely on scholarships. Koshal was lucky enough to get a a scholarship to Oxford. um, And having um, spent time very successfully at the Indian Institute of Planning and Architecture. So he came to me as an MPhil student at Oxford, already equipped as a GIS mapper. Wow. Um, And that's the secret of the atlas. (laughs) Um, I had received the data and passed it on to econometricians um, who had done a series of econometric studies and analyses of of data um, on the numbers of Dalits and Adivasis in businesses, as owners of businesses in India. Um, And they had been remarkable because they were statistically insignificant. And so Pinnicky's data seemed to reach a dead end. But I had a feeling about this data. I, I had a nose for it. And I gave it to Koshal and said, can you make maps of it? Mm-hmm. And one of the great moments of my life was the moment when Koshal came through the door into my office, um, looking for all the world like a puppy with his tail <laughs> wagging so fast. <laughs> you couldn't see it because he had discovered um, through mapping it that it made regions and regions of a sort that we had never seen before. So Koshal... Um, did this as a hobby as an MPhil student and has now gone on. He's almost completed, but he hasn't quite. Um, He he has gone on to do a doctorate at Oxford in social policy on the subject of the incorporation of Dalits into the business economy as owners of firms with a special case study of UP. Um, So that's the team, different kinds of collaborative relationships. Mm -hmm. No, it's wonderful. Like like I said before, you can really feel the the collaboration in it, and it, it gives it, it gives it, it gives the book a lot of yeah, creative tension, I suppose. You know, people who are thinking about the world in a different way coming together with this, so it, it works very very nicely. So let's talk a little bit then about 
about the yeah the findings of the book so it's split into into three chapters and the final chapter has this wonderful atlas that you just mentioned but the first chapter um dalit capital in the new india this you look at basically or market entry at credit and at networks and you're exploring how and why the state discriminates and you do this through the stories of, of dalit business people and so i suppose my question to you here is, is the question that you ask ask yourself is why are caste prejudice why are caste prejudices in the modern marketplace so hard to eliminate um <laughs> yes that's, <Big> question that's, <laughs> that's <a really> <laughs> well it is it it is a hard question um because what caste means in modern india varies according to where you are in society um what your caste meant um and still means in the broken down system or hierarchy um that that is being transformed um and for people who don't know about caste and i must assume that some of the people who are listening um want to know more about it yes caste has persisted it it was outlawed um in the constitution but it has persisted despite all kinds of positive discrimination in india they're called reservations um and these reservations apply to education and to pu- the public sector including public corporations and despite policies like the one that was experimented with in madhya pradesh on supplier diversity that is i suppose we would call it um state procurement uh favoring dalit suppliers despite that and despite there being a dalit um chamber of commerce and despite there being dalit millionaires or billionaires um in rupee terms dalits are still getting a very raw deal and they are far from being full citizens of india mm-hmm. and so the question is why is caste so hard to eliminate and then what is happening at the foot of the caste system because there's a huge debate amongst scholars of of dalits and amongst anthropologists about whether dalits untouchables are at the bottom of the caste system and in that sense incorporated in it in a particular way in a very adverse way or whether they are outside the caste system and the jury is out on all this so what we can say about caste is that it persists in three dimensions it persists in kinship in india and that's not something that the state can regulate it persists in diet um unbelievably the the amount of dietary diversity in india is, is unimaginable it's it's incredible and it's associated with um social status season stage of life time of the year festival etc etc and caste and it's also associated with occupation in the sense that there's now a whole slew of modern occupations which have no relation to ancient ones however there's another kind of occupation for instance sound services now why would it be that barber caste monopolizes sound services in modern india well that's because barbers were also are also musicians and musicians have given rise to the sound service that accompanies any public event and that you wish were private you know, a lot of the time in 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 the mufasil in up country india um what else uh laundrettes dobi caste the washerman caste often has upgraded to laundrettes um gosh all kinds of examples but they've gone out of my head but you get my drift yes that yep. there there are um well uh, hardware stores are coming from people who beat aluminium vessels who came from potters etc etc yep so there's a a kind of occupation there are many occupations in, in modern india that go back to transformations of old caste occupations um with which castes still tend to be aligned now it's not 100% but uh, and and there is a dissolving of castes which was confidently predicted by nehru and mehrdal in the 60s and didn't really happen and then again confidently predicted by the the captains of sociology at the at the, at the time liberalization was announced in india in 1991 but 
this is happening very slowly and unevenly. Okay, so that's the answer about caste. But let's turn that into a question about untouchability. Untouchability is so hard to eliminate because um, the structure of accumulation is also a structure of discrimination. So people do, and people have told me that Dalits are not proper human beings or that Dalits have special genius for working in the hot sun. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and there is a lot of very serious research which has now um, proved beyond doubt that India is, is a country that is... Um, that that is is one of the worst offenders in terms of social discrimination. Um, I was hesitating because there is a whole debate about adding caste to international laws on racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to go down that route because we'd be here all night. Um, caste is different from race. Um, but uh, the kind of prejudice which um, remains in India is most powerfully expressed against the people who are at the bottom of the pile. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Asim's chapter is a summary of a book of his which is about to be published called Dalit Capital. And it is the result of his 90 business histories in North India. And what he does is to evoke and interpret the narratives of Dalits in a double way. Firstly, he gets them to tell their own story of the problems that they have entering business as owners of firms. And you rightly said it's a problem of credit, but it's also a problem of sight, of rent, of the high price that they have to pay for raw materials, the problem of finding markets, and the relatively low price at which they have to sell their goods. The the real difficulty at every stage, not just entry, but also operation of firms in the marketplace. So that's one kind of narrative which, with great skill, Asim has elicited from Dalit businessmen. Mm But then he uses Dalit narratives in a second way to explain it. So he doesn't sit by, we don't sit by as outsiders making a judgment or making an interpretation. What we try to do is to use the research material to let it tell tell the story of discrimination, what it feels like to be the owner of a firm. Mm-hmm. So what is... what? what in the research design, what's missing is, is as it were, the control. Um, when Asim says Dalit firms are smaller than your average firm, well, we know that in a general way from the economic census. But when people say, well, where's your control? Well, control is the rest of India. And it, it was impossible to, 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 to mount a project big enough to find controls in any case, what would you control for? Mm-hmm. So what 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 we've done instead is to is to record the fact that Dalits themselves say that their firms are smaller. Yes. Yes. Yep. So it's a particular kind of approach to um, history and to business history, but also to the explanation of that history. Mm-hmm. And it's not just confined. That chapter is not simply confined to the market. Um, because, as you said, um, questions have been asked about the relationship between Dalits and the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and what part of the state are Dalits most concerned with? Well, the tax authorities, local municipality, the police, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And what what the story is, is that while Dalits see upper caste people using their influence, possibly with bribes, but often with kinship connections, um, getting ties in the state. And then those ties ripple out from one government department to another, horizontally, if you like, through the local state. That doesn't happen for the Dalit. 
for the Dalits, they have to bribe their way into um, a relationship of clientage um, to a patron, say, in the police. And that will not ripple out to commercial taxes or to the municipality. They will have to, to, to make that relationship of clientage again every time they want to approach any part of the state. So that is a very distinctive problem for Dalits, and it means that accessing the state and trying to influence or represent themselves or twist the interventions of the state to their own advantage is much costlier for Dalits in business than it is for non-Dalits, for higher caste businessmen. Mm-hmm. And finally, da- <coughs> excuse me, da- Asim looks at civil society, and there, the Indian sociological um, establishment, some of the great scholars of Indian sociology, have seen caste um, dissolving as an ordering principle, as a principle of social order. But for Dalits, that's not the case. And they argue that as long as kinship, marriages, alliances through, through marriage... Um, are confined by caste, which they still are, mm-hmm. then um, there is no way that Dalits cannot be at the bottom of that s- social hierarchy. Um, so that the very fact of, of the tight relations of kinship that survive in modern India, um, the very fact of that means that Dalits are excluded from upward social mobility. They may be upwardly economically mobile. They may be rich, but they're not upwardly socially mobile. So that's really um, what Chapter One is about. Mm-hmm. But it's and it's 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 wonderful that uh, this will be a, a separate book by Asim Prakash as well, because there's a few of the stories in this chapter, but um, you can tell there's so much more yes. detail. You want more, so it's 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 great that that will be a book coming out because the the stories themselves are so fascinating to read of of the Dalit businessmen. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk then a little bit about chapter two, which is set in the town that you mentioned before in in Arnie, I guess. Yes. yes. Yeah. And um, uh, but before we go there, I think before and before we talk about the town, I was wondering if you could explain to us the concept which you which you developed in the book that you uh, mentioned previously, India Working, about what you mean by the the social structure of accumulation and how this works with caste and corporatism and so on, because this will really help us to to understand what's going on in this town. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, most economists. And I um, am an economist, or at least was. Um, think of regulation as a function of the state, yes, of laws and of policy. Um, in India, the since the state doesn't regulate the economy, I used to think that it was um, a problem of the limits of state capacity. But then I know that India puts, it sends rockets to Mars. Um, It's not a problem of lack of state capacity. It is actually a decision not to regulate the state, the the economy. And and there's a a great skein of of rules and regulations um, through which the state could establish order in the economy, but it doesn't use them. It doesn't implement or enforce them. Okay, um, so then the, que- the question is, what does bring order? And so institutions which economists think of as soft institutions, um, institutions like patriarchy in its oldest form, that is relations of male authority over men as well as over women, um, notions of purity and pollution and dirt and and lack of status associated with dirt. Um, the collective um, f- forms of authority that swill around religion and and define proper good behavior and define who the other is and what you may do with the other. All these forms of authority express themselves in the economy 
Um, gender relations, to give you a stark example, um, mean that practically 75% of the population doesn't and probably can't operate in the economy as owners of firms. Um, women are not allowed to own firms. If they do, it's often Benami, it's, um, it's a, a, a fictitious form of ownership. Um, it, it doesn't exist in practice. Uh, of course, there are women owners, owners of firms, and there's a Dalit owner, uh, a, a very successful Dalit entrepreneur who's a woman. I'm not saying that they are never women, but they are very rarely women. Uh, and um, upper caste women are, are generally secluded and prevented from owning firms. Obviously, there's a kink point. I'm not talking about people at the top of the Indian economy. I'm talking about Mofasil India, India of the small towns, um, India of the informal economy. So patriarchal power prevents women from own, owning firms. Um, it then orders um, the roles of family members, male family members, and what they they may claim on the fa from the family firm, and how property is to be divided between them when they marry or when families split. Um, caste has a stratifying role in the economy. Um, the wage labor force is mostly the lower castes and the owners are mostly middle or higher castes. So that the idea of Dalits being owners of firms is a transgressive idea. They have had to um, break out of the expectation that they will be laborers, that they will be confined to poverty wages and contemptuous treatment um, in the very decision to become owners of firms. I don't know whether this is, um, is, is a good answer to the question. But, oh, it is. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so the very act of, of uh, setting up in fruit and vegetables or a meat store or dealing in fish um, on any scale is, is a great assertion by a Dalit. In 1973 in Velour, I met a Dalit rice retailer. Um, now, rice has been retailed for hundreds of years. But this person was a true entrepreneur because he was, and he knew he was, the first Dalit rice retailer <laughs> in the whole region. And he had had to fight prejudice in setting up. And he had, at first, of course, his market was completely confined to Dalits, Dalit consumers, because the rice had been milled and therefore had been um, cleaned of its sheath, which was protecting um, the kernel from the pollution of caste. Uh, you don't believe this, but then that's why Dalits sell fruit. They're allowed to sell fruit and vegetables because fruit and vegetables are transformed before they're eaten mm -hmm. in India. Um, so just to set up as an owner of a firm is an act of tremendous assertion um, for a Dalit, especially if, if there are no other Dalits in that sector in that town. And that's quite common. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, so, okay, so I mean, I, I, I mean to, yeah, to, to move then a little bit towards this this town in question. I, I suppose you're, I mean, in a in a very broad way, you're you're pointing out that this market isn't a, a, a clean market full of like social relations that have no characteristics. There's, it's full of it's full of the characteristics of Indian society are there in the market themselves, and so you and then in terms of yes, I, of course I'm sorry to butt in, but but okay. um, what I didn't say is that what I concluded in India working is that these so-called soft institutions like gender and caste and religion. And later I came to understand ethnicity and even language, though it hasn't been researched, okay. and place <coughs> actually operate to form a structure together. They form a structure which stabilizes the process of accumulation mm -hmm. and makes the kind of transgressive behavior that we're describing in this book much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
No, it was brilliant. You answered my question before I got to the end of it. <laughs> I was going to ask <laughs> about this. Uh, yeah, this how it, how it basically this this structure stabilizes and also destabilizes. And so in in the in the in the town in Arni, you're looking at different associations, Dalit associations, occupational associations, caste associations, and also political parties. So how how do these work? In terms of yeah, in terms of stabilizing or unstabilizing um, yeah, accumulation in the economy. Well, most um, scholars of India are very surprised that um, business associations are are important, but in my forty five years of research, I find they are important. Often they're sleepy. When they're sleepy, nothing is threatening them. But the moment. Um, something comes along to threaten the sector that's represented by a business association, they spring to life. They're really important. Um, you, you mentioned sector associations and caste associations. One of our first insights and what, um, in discussion with Elisabetta, gave rise to the project, which is summarised in the second essay, um, one of the first insights came to me in early 1990s, sitting with the Chamber of Commerce president in his cloth shop. And, and I suddenly realized that most of the cloth shops um, belong to a certain caste. Mm-hmm. And here was a quite modest trader, not the biggest businessman, by no means the biggest businessman in town, um, heading up the Chamber of Commerce. And that's because he was a particularly effective leader previously of the Javlikade, the cloth shop business association. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my early work on agricultural markets and rice, I knew how incredibly important the rice millers and rice tr- traders associations were to representing the sector. And when I turned to interview the presidents of these associations, I realized that they were important in regulation as well, not simply in representation Mm. and in arguing the toss with the state, almost always coming into because of a threat to the industry or the sector from the state and often achieving the um, ignoring or avoiding of the law or the implementing of the law. That I knew, everybody explained that right from the early 70s onwards. But the regulating of the market, what do I mean by that? Well, through these associations, um, apprenticeship, apprentices are ordered, people are sent off to, not to their uncle, but to somebody a little further afield in relational terms to learn the trade. But the selection of those who undergo apprenticeships and are inducted into the knowledge required to run a firm in a particular sector, that is done through kinship and therefore through caste. Um, Information, contacts, initial capital often supplied through the business associations. In the old days before weights and measures were standardized, the business association necessarily had to stand guard over weights and measures. They also mediated disputes since going to the court would take ages, years, and would involve a lot of bribery. Um, it was much more efficient to um, mediate the kind of dispute that arises in trade through the association. Then if um, somebody had a catastrophic loss, a tarpaulin flew off a lorry and a, a load got drenched and a person was bankrupted, then there would be a whip round. And there would also be a whip round for cases of distress, I mean um, sickness or Um, or death of a breadwinner. Um, Then acts of philanthropy um, to engrave on the body social the idea that uh, these were people of status. So helping with eye camps, um, school uniforms for children, this kind of thing. So business associations had a very comprehensive role in the regulation of the town. They would also regulate sites. They would um, help fix the dozens of sites where loaders and unloaders, these gangs of labourers, would um, stand waiting for work. They would regulate where horse-drawn carts, hand-drawn carts, 
um, all the, the carters of the town, which was tremendously important and still is because the streets are so narrow that lorries can't get down them. And then the regulation of labour. Many of these associations um, have small firms or leaders of the labour force as occasional members or recruited in for key meetings. And and the wage rate in that sector is negotiated or it's laid down. It's more often imposed. Um, and then when it's flouted, those are also... Uh, when uh, an owner wants to recruit labour force in a hurry or prefer certain people and the wage rate goes up, then that will be negotiated and discussed again in the business association. So um, the business association is important. I hope I've explained this. And Elisabetta's work, her field work and the work that we did together um, has shown that in spades. Um, but the business associations themselves are loosely um, evolved from past associations in this town mm-hmm. and there are sectors of the town for instance the silk weavers and the silk merchants where the association is mapped quite closely onto caste even in the 21st century and that's true of the Dalits as well but there are other parts of the town for instance rice milling where um, I don't know about half to 70% of the current generation of rice millers may come from one caste, but certainly not exclusively. So what I want you to um, uh, grasp is that the business association has um, evolved from the caste association. The caste association has cultural activities and cultural political activities, and the business association has regulative activities. And the relationship between caste and sector of the economy is more or less precise. Mm-hmm. Having said that, um, this chapter is about Dalits. Yes. <laughs> the, the chapter tries to explain all this, but then focus on the, um, the bottom of the pile. And what's interesting about the bottom of the pile is that because everybody knows they're Dalits, they insist on secularity they insist on being modern and secular they the the connection between caste and their occupation or the sector of the business economy that they're regulating is kept as far apart as possible the meaning of caste for Dalits is different from the meaning of caste for the Um, backward castes and the forward castes who form the business elite of the town for them it's a condition of difference just as the sociologists have explained to us however for the Dalits um, it's a condition of hierarchy and low status so the secularization of what they do fruit and vegetables um, porters um, transport workers um, that's really important to their um, their attempts at, at mobility within the labour force. The Dalits have fewest choices in the towns. For, for them, their caste is a condition of hierarchy, a condition of lack of choice. They can get out. Um, their role models are very different from those of other castes. Um, they take inspiration from people who've been in the army, in the police, people who are chauffeurs. And currently, this isn't in the chapter, but currently the um, top civil servant in the municipality is a Dalit, um, but the people the Dalits respect the most are three moneylenders who've got compounds on the edge of town with swimming pools, which is a big innovation. And they've come, in one lifetime, they have come from being headloaders and porters And these are three Dalits who started to lend money to other porters and who have profited enormously as moneylenders. Fascinating. The the Dalits uh, as a whole, I think what we're trying to sort of rise above the detail about it and and say what they are concerned with, which is peculiarly Dalit, is um, terms and conditions of exchange, their rights as business people, if you like, 
fruit and vegetable sellers, um, people who sit on sacks beside the main road, um, their status, the sites they're allowed to ply their business at inside the town and their physical protection. And that goes toward their residences as well. And they really are on the front line of the battle between the, the battle for economic resources bet between themselves and the lowest of the backward castes in the business economy, the Vanyas, um, who are also acquiring land. That's something that Dalits find very difficult to do um, and trying to break into business. <laughs> so that there's, there's a particularly vicious sense of tension between Dalits in the town and the next lowest caste group in the town. <laughs> well, thank you. And that, 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 I suppose that really gives us a sense in one locality how, how um, caste or, or, or more specifically how being Dalit, you know, works inside the economy. And then what you do in the final essay is to really broaden this out and take a, a pan-Indian approach yes. and um, and look at it look at it using yeah, statistical data and we took you talked a little bit before about this wonderful story about how, how you came to create the atlas and, I, and I'd really want to to flag up to, to listeners that it's the atlas is a really wonderful resource for anyone who works in India I mean the first thing I did and I'm sure the first thing everyone will do is to look at the look at the small district where where you did research and you think ah oh, okay so what's oh and how is that different and why is that different from you know surrounding districts and so on so it's a really wonderful it's a really wonderful resource it, it probably takes up the last half of the book if not more no the actual of, of actual pages of is is really in depth but um, I was wondering so 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 in this atlas and in, and in this chapter you, you want to measure discrimination right across yes. yes so I was wondering maybe you could tell us how you measure discrimination. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Could I just, before I answer that question, say that um, I don't think we would have created this atlas were it not for Asad Zaidi and Nalini Tanesha, because uh, who are the couple who run a kind of craft press called Three Essays Press, mm -hmm. which is a brilliant idea um, of, of shortish books consisting of three essays on given subjects, often of enormous political salience. They are absolutely dedicated and brilliant um, at every aspect of publishing. And it is because of their enthusiasm for this project that we created the Atlas. And um, what you haven't said is that the Atlas is um, a very high quality publishing effort. The paper is beautiful. Um, the, the maps are huge. Um, and they act as, as you rightly enthuse about it. They act as a challenge to people to try to answer the questions that they pose, the maps, but that can't be answered by us. Um, so your question was about measurement and how you measure discrimination. Well, I mean, firstly, let me just define it, that, that discrimination is um, adv an adverse outcome to people who are otherwise um, possessing a given degree of endowment, right? So people are basically the same, but because of the action of discrimination, they have different outcomes. So the question is how to measure it. Um, a, a lot of people have tried to do that. Um, the the top Dalit economist, um, Professor Torat, who set up the International Institute of Dalit Studies, he has worked with ActionAid and uh, and uh, Professor Jodka, who succeeded him as the director of the IIDS, he has um, also done a, and encouraged a lot of field research. So one way of measuring discrimination is to ask, um, are you allowed into temples? Are you allowed to eat in the kitchen? Yes. Um, of somebody else. Um, would you allow Dalits to eat in your kitchen? Etc. Etc. So there is a huge literature which shows that um, for a sizable proportion of Dalits, discrimination is experienced as their daily lot. Um, and there is then another kind of literature which um, takes the Dalit voice from the Dalit perspective and describes this life world. I'm thinking of Kancha Elaya and Chandraban Prasad 
um, and Gopal Guru's wonderful book, um, distressing book, but a very fine book on humiliation mm-hmm. as a concept. Then you can measure it through experiments, and there have been um, attempts to um, send blind and then very obviously Dalit applications. Um, they're famous experiments with business process organizations and IT companies, which have shown um, that th- there is discrimination against Dalits. And then there are games. There's a set of literature, there's a World Bank economist who set up a game um, where uh, performance was measured when um, everybody's identity was unknown and then it, and then identities were divulged and performances were measured. And the result there is that um, performance went down universally, but for Dalits much worse than ever, for non-Dalits. Um, but the Atlas is measuring discrimination in a different way. Um, we have used the economic census data, which gives the n- number of firms in every district of India, in each district, the number of firms in 14 different sectors of the economy, um, and gives gives it by uh, scheduled caste, which means Dalit, scheduled tribe, which means Adivasi, and the rest, other. Um, so we can use that data and use census data on populations for the same districts and then create an index which where one is basically parity. Um, an index of one means there is the same proportion of uh, Dalit firms to total firms in this sector, in this district, as there is Dalit population to total population. Okay, it's a very simple index, and we thought the simpler the better. And more than one, values um, in excess of one mean a positive uh, participation of Dalits or Adivasis in this particular sector of the economy, and less than one mean a disproportionately low um, uh, participation, and which we're interpreting as discrimination. Okay. Yes. So that makes sense. And so, then, and so we then map the index of participation or discrimination. We call it participation. We, we have mapped it for 1990 at the beginning of liberalisation, and 1998 and 2005. And there is now a new round of data to be mapped, but it won't be us who mapped map it. Um, and the idea was behind the atlas was that liberalisation would unleash um, a set of socially dissolving forces and that con- custom would yield to contract and that um, regional different social differences would dissolve and that um, regional differences would converge um, with liberalization and an evening out of factor proportions in the economy. And of course, that's the major finding is that that hasn't happened and that um, A, there are regions, B, they behave consistently over time, C, the regions change according to the sector, D, there are major differences between the incorporation of Dalits and Adivasis in the economy, and broadly over time, um, the disadvantage of Dalits in the economy, the disadvantage has actually crept south, and the southern states of India, which are thought by political scientists investigating poverty to be pro-poor are not pro-Dalit um, and Adivasis have slowly clawed their way into the business economy from a very poor starting point over this period of 15 years in a kind of regional flow from east toward the west of the country <coughs> but I should say that what this amounts to is we talk about them as owners of firms, but very, very tiny firms. The average firm in India has um, declined from employing 2.9 people in 1990 to 2.4 pe- employees in 2005. So we're dealing with um, a doubling in total numbers of firms in India from about 20 to 40 million over that period. I think it's an underestimate. But the most important thing is that the firms are very, very small. Mm-hmm. The 
business and financial pages and even the social pages of most Indian newspapers are besotted with the corporate sector. But the corporate sector accounts for still far less of the economy than this petty producing, this self-employed own account enterprise economy. Mm-hmm. And that is expanding not by accumulating, but by multiplication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at times of death or at times of marriage, mm-hmm. at times of family and business splitting, it, it expands in that way. The stories of rags to riches are legion in the press, but they're very few and far between in the informal economy. Mm-hmm. Most firms begin small and they stay small. It's difficult to keep afloat. So the Atlas um, gives a kind of spatial um, representation of this story. And mm-hmm. so um, I don't know what to say about it because the, the challenge for further research is enormous. Um, would you like me to describe some of the patterns? Sure, yes, if you can. I mean, you, you, you talked a little bit before earlier about the Sadavasi from east to west. But yeah, a few more of the patterns would be interesting to know, yeah. It's I mean the the best thing is to is 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 to look at the Atlas. Yes. <laughs> I mean when we talk about Dalit advantage, we're really talking about construction. The map of construction shows positive participation of Dalits almost throughout the whole of India. But when we talk about when we look at finance and business and hotels, anything to do with food and, and money, Dalits are conspicuous by their absence. Um, when we look at manufacturing, Dalits' participation is very strangely located in the same shape of sort of dumbbell shape across the centre of India. Um, the, the tribal's absolute population is located in and of course Dalits who make it across the inner line into the northeastern states um, are very highly represented but they're highly represented from very small numbers mm-hmm. so the northeast has its own very interesting story to tell um, UP is a very fascinating state because the representation of Dalits in the economy varies enormously according to what sector you're looking at. Gujarat is fascinating because it's so utterly um, bereft of Dalit participation. And yet round the edge of Gujarat, there's a belt of very high Dalit participation in almost all sectors of the economy. These are real conundra that require detailed research way below the level of the nation state and possibly below the level of the state. Because another finding, of course, is that these regions of high participation don't obey state boundaries. So they're not political regions. They are other kinds of region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, When we turn from Dalits to Adivasis, um, the regional patterns are much more consistent across the different sectors of the economy. In UP, there are very few Adivasis in absolute terms, in terms of population, but there are loads in terms, their participation is very high as owners of tiny firms. Down the western side of India, in Gujarat, and then around Mumbai, and then in Kerala, um, there's a very high and constant um, clustering of uh, positive participation of Adivasis as owners of tiny firms. Now, why this is the case, nobody has the faintest idea. And so these are very fascinating results that scream out of the atlas that require a different kind of research from the one, the kinds of research that are represented in this book of essays and atlas. Sure. And and that's what's really exciting, I think, about about seeing it, you realise, you, you start to think of a hundred questions. Yes. Yes, and this is, this is why it's wonderful. It really is a challenge for, yeah, for future research, just in the same way your book built on people challenging your previous research. This yeah. book itself also offers then a further challenge yeah, back back to people as well. So that's it's really wonderful. Um, I, was, I was just wondering, I, have you had much feedback? I know it's a recently published book from... Dalit scholars in in India since you've published a book? Well, um, 
two kinds of feedback. One, I was asked to give the valedictory lecture uh, for the 10 years on celebrations of the International Institute of Dalit Studies. Mm -hmm. And so I chose to summarize the three essays in the Atlas. And there are about 150 Dalit scholars there. And I was, it, certainly all I can say is that it, 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 the message went home. And I got a lot of very positive feedback about the need to do more research. My dream would be for some, um, a, a scholar in, or a network of scholars in Indian universities to send their students back to their home villages as Gilbert Slater did in 1916 in Tamil Nadu and then set up the tradition of village studies. If this were done um, with a parsimonious checklist of questions, I think many answers to the kinds of questions that arise about unevenness in Dalit and Adivasi participation in the economy, mm -hmm. they will be answered very quickly. And, and so it's my hope that that seed has been planted somewhere. Um, otherwise, Professor Sudhapai, who is the rector of JNU, um, is very excited by the results for Uttar Pradesh and is going to um, is going to study Dalits, Adivasis, and also Muslims in the business economy of Uttar Pradesh. It's another piece of very positive feedback. Brilliant. So that's that's more stuff to look forward to in the future. Yes. That continues this dialogue. Excellent. Um, yes. Okay. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I know you're very busy. So I'd like to thank you again for for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it was wonderful. And I really would say again to the, um, yeah, to say again to the listeners what Barbara mentioned about really what a beautiful book it is. I was reading this on one of the very few sunny days outside the library, and usually people ignore you. But when I was reading this book, people came over and said, "What book are you reading?" Because it's an interesting shape. Because it's in a it's in a portrait shape. And yes. uh, it has a wonderful photograph on the back as well. And then so and then and people would say, oh, so what's that? What's that you're reading? And it's one that when you put it on your bookshelf, it sticks out. So you'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never forget that you've got it. Um, I dust it regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I said I dust it regularly. Oh yes, <laughs> right, because <laughs> that's how because that's how it goes. But that's that's an that's an ingenious uh, yeah that's an ingenious uh, yeah ploy from the publishers as well I suppose. So um, okay, so thank you again. Thanks a lot for coming on and thanks for giving us your time and uh, thanks a lot for writing the book. Thank you, Ian, and thanks to Three Essays Press. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Dalits and Adivasis in India's Business Economy by Barbara Harris-White and collaborators. Thanks a lot for downloading the show and hope to see you next time. Ta-ra!